Hey everybody, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. As always, I am your host, Ben Pakulski. Thank you very much for being here. We frame this podcast around living your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. And today we are joined by Kyle Gillette. He is a family physician that focuses on everything that ultimately goes into optimizing the human system. Most family physicians are focused on sick care or traditional allopathic medicine. Kyle focuses his energy on what he says, the integration of body, mind, and soul. We get into a a lot of tactics, but a bit of detail around how to optimize your lab work, what things you should be looking at to optimize hormones. We get into a little bit around cellular health, uh, his obesity medicine practice, or ultimately how to assist in fat loss. We talk about some specific medicines or pharmaceuticals that he uses. Uh, with his patients to optimize fat loss, to optimize longevity, and so much more. A really, really great conversation. My suggestion, stick around at the end. We get really, really dense in the last 20 minutes or so of the podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Organifi, organifi.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 20% off their world famous green, red, and gold drinks. I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. The thing I love about Organifi is they're intentionally sourcing all of their ingredients to be 100% glyphosate free, 100% organic, and free of all major food allergens. This allows you to take a greens product to upgrade your nutrition. This is something I take frequently. I wouldn't say I take it daily, but certainly three to four times a week, usually in my morning routine, allows me to ensure that I'm covering my bases as far as getting the vitamins and the superfoods into my diet to allow my body to thrive. As far as the reds, you guys have heard me talk about the reds before. This red juice is full of adaptogenic powders and other supplements to help you detoxify, to retain nitrogen in the system, to ultimately improve blood flow, improve erectile quality, and improve heart health and cardiovascular health. The gold, again, is something that is just delightful to end your day. It's full of adaptogenic herbs and reishi mushroom, and other things to help calm down the nervous system, calm down the mind, and ultimately just a nice little treat before bed. So head over to Organifi.com right now slash muscle. Say that again, Organifi.com slash muscle right now to get hooked up with 20% off. Now back to the podcast with Kyle Gillette. So I'd love to hear a little bit about you, talk a little bit about your background. I know you're a recent graduate of med school. And that's awesome. And you've already kind of started to make a platform for yourself, which is great. So tell me a little bit about your past. Yeah, absolutely. So I've always known that I've wanted to do concierge full spectrum preventative medicine. My father is a family doctor as well, and he does obstetrics. I work with him uh, a little bit now. And uh, he's a great guy. I saw that he really liked taking care of his patients and that he approached things holistically. So he always looked at the body, the mind, and the soul. You can't really treat one of those without treating the other three. So even from before I was a teenager, I, I kind of knew that I wanted to go into full spectrum or um, you know, um, general medicine, and that I also wanted to hopefully practice with them someday as well. So I've kind of tailored my education after that. I went to med school at the University of Kansas from 2013 to 2017. And uh, they are one of the few med schools that are, that's left that still emphasizes primary care. So one of the problems with healthcare in the country is that many places don't emphasize primary care. Dozens, if not hundreds of people have told me that it is a waste 
for me to be going into primary care. Thankfully, the state of Kansas does uh, emphasize that and subsidizes it pretty heavily. And there's also many programs to help students at the University of Kansas that want to go back to Kansas to do primary care at some point. To tell me what primary care actually means. It's just differentiating between that and what a normal family physician might be. Yeah. So most family physicians do primary care. Some family physicians also, uh, you know, work in the urgent care, which I do from time to time as well. Primary care is generally thought of as uh, pediatricians, family physicians, and anybody who can be a PCP or a primary care provider. Internists can also do this. So uh, they're the, the front line. You also have secondary and tertiary care. So think of the big academic centers or level one trauma centers as tertiary care. So in the level of safety net, you might've seen the diagram where there's a cliff. Primary care stops the patient from going over the cliff. And then the tertiary care, you know, after they go into the hospital with um, DKA or pneumonia or whatever, that's a, a safety net that's catching people after they already fall off the cliff. Very cool. Yeah. So we actually have a great family primary care doctor in Florida, Dr. David Berger. I think he's unbelievable. The thing I love about him also, again, probably one of the few guys who actually still does it. The thing I love about him is he doesn't have a closed mind, meaning many doctors we meet who have gone through the conventional schooling system tend to just kind of fit into the sick care model. And it sounds like, and the reason I was interested in talking to you, it sounds like you also don't, don't tend to fit into that box of you know, as you say, catching people as they, once they've fallen over the cliff, it's like, what can we actually do to optimize lifestyle and health? And and I'm curious to hear what you have to say about when you say body, mind, and soul, because that, that's interesting coming from a doctor. So I have to dig into that a little bit later. But uh, so what does it look like for you? Let's say I walk into your office, never met me before. What does an intervention look like to start making sure that I'm kind of checking all the boxes to optimize my health? Yeah. So if you come to my office, uh, obviously, I'd, I'd know a little bit about you before, but it would be different than anybody else. So it is individualized, and that's why we don't have computers running everything. So there's algorithms for a lot of things, whether it's um, you know computer programs that are looking for criteria um, of how well a doctor is practicing, essentially. Insurance companies utilize these, or whether it's expert level of recommendation criteria. So um, those are easy to go by by most primary care providers, but um, you know it's good to find one that you get along with. So if they don't understand you and your goals, then they're not going to be able to do much more than just go by the algorithm. So if, if you came into the office and you said, Dr. Gillette, my goal is to uh, you know, have a long health span. I want to perform cognitively uh, well into old age, and I want to perform optimally, and I want to perform athletically, and I also want to avoid any risk of pathology. Here's my family history, uh, history of X, Y, and C in my grandparents, and I'd like to avoid that. So then I might talk to you about screening labs that are a little bit more aggressive than the usual labs that insurance companies do. You know, if it's cardiovascular disease, we can talk about apolipoprotein B, which is ApoB. We might talk about lipoprotein A. We also might talk about inflammation. We might talk about diet. Um, so there's a lot of different angles. Um, one of the newest angles that's one of my favorites is genetic testing. So testing both, um, you know, the full sequence of the gene that codes a protein, that encodes a protein, and also testing SNPs or just little changes in the genes as well. So uh, it could be a whole host of those things. Awesome. I love that you're going down that path. That was definitely something I wanted to ask. It's like, are you doing the 
conventional kind of allopathic approach where it's like I'm looking at blood and urine and all the other stuff and integrating that with something like DNA because, and I'd love to hear how you work those together because that's something that I actually do in my coaching. We work together with some high-end naturopathic doctors and functional medicine practitioners and a geneticist to kind of bridge that gap. So I'm curious how you, uh, you know, how you approach it. Is it, uh, do you do all the reading of the raw material, raw data, or do you actually go through some type of processing system that gives your report? Yeah. So I don't read the true raw data itself. It's uh, particularly difficult to actually read the raw data, but there's a lot of different programs that you can use. Promethease is the general kind of like open source paper use one that people know of, but I do integrate that. And I'm actually the director of our functional medicine clinic, which we're now going to call our integrative medicine clinic. So I obviously integrate functional medicine aspects as well. And we have a team-based approach. So I work in concert with dietitians. I work in concert with therapists. And a lot of times I'll tell patients that there's six main big things they can do to make a big difference, a bigger difference than any pharmaceutical medication or supplement. Those are diet, exercise, sleep, stress, sunlight, and spirit. So there's obviously a lot of different things that you can do within those, but they're all very powerful interventions. And I have prescription pads and I write out the prescription of whatever intervention that I want the patient to do. Very cool. And that's so funny. That's It's almost exactly the same as my six pillars of a lean, healthy, and muscular body. I actually replace out sunlight with the environment or your environment, but ultimately exactly the same thing. Very cool, man. We landed in the same uh, same place. So one of the things that you tend to talk about is uh, hormone optimization. I think the audience will be very interested in hormone optimization, but I don't want to jump right into, you know, everyone's like, oh, testosterone and estrogen. Like, yeah, that's great. I heard you talking about thyroid and I thought you had a very interesting approach to thyroid because it seems as though that's, uh, it's neglected. It's neglected a lot. And I heard you say some really interesting things with respect to thyroid hormones. So if you, th- if you don't think that's a good place to start, we could start there. Or if you have a suggestion as to what might be a better place to start for people to start understanding hormones. We could do that as well. If you if you have a, you know, start with the adrenals, like whatever seems to work in your mind. Yeah, definitely. Uh, let's chat about thyroid, adrenals, and sex hormones as well. So I guess you could say, you mentioned that I'm a relatively new practicing physician. So I guess we're only practicing about five years now. I've seen thousands, if not tens of thousands of uh, patients, blood like comprehensive blood work panels and a lot of thyroid panels and a lot of micronutrient panels. So... Uh, using that practice practice experience is very helpful. So I see the pitfalls that comes with traditional thyroid hormone management. So, you know, uh, usually T4 or Synthroid um, and optimizing micronutrients and cofactors. And I've also seen the pitfalls of kind of the functional medicine way of managing thyroid hormone replacement. Which so, is what? Um, which is usually a combination of either desiccated thyroid, which is... Uh, porcine derived. So, you know, it's a pork thyroid glands that are desiccated up or a combination of a medication known as cytomel, which is basically T3 along with T4 in various instant and extended release combinations. So, um, thyroid hormone is related to everything. So, um, when you're talking about thyroid hormone, uh, you don't just find one specific thing and isolate that out and say, this is what we need to, um, you know, address before anything else. So that's like, uh, you know, if you're trying to change your thyroid just to change something with like your SHBG or your estrogen or your prolactin or your testosterone, uh, there's many other better ways to do it. So uh, if 
you can do two, if you can kill two birds with one stone, it's good, but often it's not necessary. Very cool. So talk to me about the mistakes being made then in, um, yeah, like what I, you said, what the actual intervention is, but I'm curious, you know, what the mistakes are and what, what approach people should be taking. From my perspective, thyroid seems to be one of the most confusing or maybe not confusing, but, but, uh, challenging hormones to, to optimize. It seems like everywhere you look, you're getting a different perspective, a different approach. So I'm curious if you do have certain advice, whether it be dietary interventions or supplemental interventions, or even if it's lifestyle interventions to help people optimize thyroid. Maybe you could speak to also, what is the reason for people having deteriorating thyroid? Yeah. So the first thing to do when you're talking about thyroid hormone function is address the cause. And that's what functional medicine's, I guess, original goal or its goal is to do. So you're trying to make sure you have enough selenium, which is a major cofactor for one of the deiodinase enzymes, uh, converting T4 to T3. So that's a good way to start. Making sure you have good sources of iodine is another way. And even the type of iodine. So it used to be, you know, like, you know, go get nascent iodine and it's a good source, but apparently some sources of nascent iodine are not as good as other sources. Um, so if you live closer to the middle of the country, then your risk of hypothyroidism increases. Hmm. So that's kind of the, the first thing to do is make sure you get it in, you're not vitamin deficient. You're not vitamin D deficient. Um, you're getting the right type of iodine. You're eating a healthy diet. You're not in a huge caloric deficit. Uh, for example, you know, many natural bodybuilders, I've seen TSHs, um, that, uh, uh, and T3s and T4s that are very, very abnormal. And it is literally just from, uh, too hard of a cut. And obviously that's not enough micronutrients as well, but that's the first step. And then after that, if you look at the AACE guidelines, American, uh, Academy of clinical endocrinology, the endocrinology guidelines is in general, almost always use T4 or Synthroid or tyrosin is another, uh, source of T4. So if you do that, you're converting your T4 to T3. And this is actually like, a in the best case scenario, this is uh, the best way that you can manage your hypothyroidism because you have three different thyroid deiodinase enzymes. The first one, the second one, the third one, it's kind of like a corollary to the 5AR enzymes for um, people who are familiar with that. So ideally your tissues have a tissue specific thyroid deiodinase and they have their own homeostatic window in that tissue so that if that tissue uh, you know, via the dozens of different negative and positive feedback inhibition mechanisms requires active T3 hormone, then they can convert it with their tissue specific deiodinase. Whereas if they don't, they do not have to convert it. So if you're taking desiccated thyroid or a high amount of T3, your tissue is not able to abide by those homeostatic mechanisms. Well, that's really interesting. Okay. So good to know. Um, okay, so I'd love to shift toward the adrenal glands with stress being such a massive consideration, massive maybe concern, uh, especially in, in current circumstance. Uh, I'm just curious uh, if you have a specific thought process around balancing adrenal hormones and balancing cortisol, uh, maybe walking us down the path of understanding some of those basic tests and how people, what people might be looking for when they're testing their blood and their urine. Um, and maybe even there's some genetic considerations that stand out. I know it's a very broad question. Yeah. Um, so you touched on a lot of the things. There's different ways to test your adrenal hormones. So cortisol, also DHEA. Um, there's uh, 
a lot of different types of adrenal hormones. So you have your mineralocorticoids, your glucocorticoids, and then your sex steroids. I think of the major sex steroid as DHEA and the major, um, you know, like glucocorticoid as cortisol. So your cortisol, uh, it has a, a circadian rhythm that is the opposite of melatonin. So a spike early in the morning, um, the easy way to think about it is it stresses you out enough because it's cortisol to, you know, it's a little kick in the butt to get up in the morning. So some cortisol is definitely good. Um, an interesting uh, interplay between cortisol and testosterone also exists. So uh, um, even if you look at um, like interspecies interaction, a lot of times if, uh, you know, for example, if your dog can smell your baseline testosterone as higher, their cortisol level is higher because they're more stressed out. Hmm. But um, so there's obviously um, interplay between adrenal steroids and gonadal steroids as well. Early in life, you go through something called adrenarchy. So um, you mentioned the genetic component. People who are more likely to overproduce those enzymes, for example, NCCAH or non-classical congenital adrenal hyperplasia, uh, they're not hermaphrodites. Um, most of the time, they don't have fertility issues, but they tend to produce more. Those people tend to have you know, um, facial hair earlier, um, kind of like signs of adrenarchy or more hormones earlier in life, well before puberty. And then later in life, a lot of people uh, have, uh, think of it as a corollary to andropause, not necessarily normal, a sign of aging, whether that's pathologic or um, normal aging, if normal aging is a thing, uh, it's kind of hard to know, but it's called, um, so you have menopause, andropause, and adrenopause. And adrenopause is the reason why if you look at uh, standard normal ranges in blood tests, the level of DHEA, it'll go from, you know, if you're 20, normal is 300 to 900 for DHEA or DHEA sulfate. If you're 90, the normal range is 20 to 100. Hmm. So deteriorating a lot. Now, do you think that's something that is uh, innately human or is that more a result of the common um, state, we'll say, of the world, the, the common, you know, the level of stress, the level of endotoxin is just the deteriorating cellular health of the human species? Yeah. It's probably mostly related to the deteriorating cellular health of the human species. So if you look at someone who has um, a low DNA pheno age, which is kind of like one of the non-licensed versions of Horvath's clock, then they tend to have less nephron loss in the kidney. And they also have less um, like uh, apoptosis. They have less loss of cells in the zona glomerulosa and probably the zona fasciculata and these different zones in the adrenals that um, go through hypoplasia over time. So you have like a ad relative adrenal hyperplasia often in childhood. And then in, um, as a result of cellular aging, a lot of times you have relative hypoplasia. So it, it is probably, I don't, you know, it's hard to say, is it like all, is it a big proportion of endocrine disruptors? Maybe, is it a big proportion of uh, inflammation and, you know, uh, just like transient CRP spikes over time. Um, again, it's kind of hard to say, but all those things probably do play a part. We do know that a lot of people, even with relatively slow aging, um, even with normal creatinine, they still lose a very large percentage, if not a majority of their nephrons as they age. Interesting. So as a family physician, 
what do you say to someone who walks into your office and says, hey, doc, I really want to optimize cellular health. I want to make sure these things don't happen. Yeah. So I address the big six first, and then I see where we have the highest yield of return. So uh, perhaps just their diet. If they have a diet high in processed foods, I'm a fan of a whole food diet. Uh, I'm not like all the way on a carnivore, all the way on a plant-based diet side. Um, they both have their positives and negatives, but um, diet is pretty highly individualized. For example, people can have uh, genetic polymorphism where they um, can handle sugar better, you know, uh, unopposed sugar unopposed by fiber, and genetically they're not as likely to develop insulin resistance. So um, for them, they're not going to have as much inflammation due to something like that. Um, but that's not for everybody. Um, so in addition to that, a lot of people ask me specifically about metformin, which I'm happy to talk about. Some people ask me about mTOR inhibition, um, like rapamune or sirolimus. Some people also ask me about NMN. Um, and then some people, especially ones that like to listen to David Sinclair will ask me about sirtuins. Yeah, we can definitely talk about all those things, but I don't want to skip over kind of the other uh, hormones we were getting to. So we, we started getting towards, went through some of the adrenals, talked about cortisol. If you, if you talk about uh, optimization of cortisol rhythms, any advice to people like other than just optimizing the big six, uh, any advice to people supplementally or dietarily on best practices to optimize, you know, that cortisol spike in the morning and then the, the kind of lull off in the evening, anything that comes to mind there, maybe it's, yeah, think things you've seen consistently in your practice that are effective in helping people reset those. Yeah. Um, so before we talk about like specific interventions, I will say that there's a lot of people who think that they have extremely high cortisol because they're stressed all the time and they've actually had cortisol burnout. So if you do something like a urinary or a salivary cortisol, Dutch test is one of them, then you'll see that they're actually very low on cortisol or they're low on cortisol in the morning and then high in the evening, as you mentioned. So for a small subset of people that can tolerate it, uh, things like ashwagandha or emodin that can decrease cortisol can be helpful, but I only like to do it at dinner or later than that, because if you take it early in the day, then it's counterproductive. In addition to that, changing your fasting window to be, um, at a different time of the day can also help. So that's, a, that's a pretty big one. Diet always helps. Exercise always helps as well. So, so when you say at a different time of the day, so knowing that fasting actually technically may increase cortisol, would you suggest doing it in the morning versus we also know that eating early actually sets your circadian biology so that you go to bed earlier. So that's one of these catch points too. So I'm just curious how you would, would you'd kind of uh, think through that. Yeah. Um, so if you're low on cortisol, then you might consider a fasting window of, you know, 4 PM to, um, you know, depending on really depending on when you wake up a few hours after you wake up. So you fast some right when you wake up and then you also fast through the evening and basically skip dinner as well. Do you um, think people like that they, would, would think people like that would have a hard time falling asleep because of elevated cortisol in the evening? They, they might, uh, it depends on the person, but that's more of an optimal fasting window. However, um, the difference between what people do as their fasting window in real life, um, is usually, you know, they fast until 4 PM. They do the opposite of that. And then they have a huge meal and they might fall asleep easily, but they might not have as high quality of a sleep. So if you're doing intermittent fasting and you're having, let's say 75% of your calories one hour before you go to bed, that's also significantly affecting your sleep quality as well. Yeah. Bad news. Totally. 
So the thing that seems to work best for me and many of my clients, again, it's obviously individualized, but just as you say, is like eating relatively early in the day, stopping food around 3 p.m. seems to really optimize uh, circadian rhythms, energy, and sleep quality just goes through the roof. Although it is definitely something you need to kind of tweak a little bit for someone who is experiencing the inability to fall asleep or that racing mind at night. Sometimes there's some supplemental interventions there to help with uh, get, helping them get to sleep and stay asleep. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful fasting interval and great advice for pretty much everybody who can make that work within their lifestyle. So a lot of clients mm-hmm. that you're seeing is probably a different patient population, fairly different than clients that I'm seeing as well. Yeah, possibly. Um, cool. So I love to talk about, you know, the, the hot topic in our world right now is hormone replacement therapy. And, uh, you know, every guy that comes into my world is like, hey, should I do this? Should I not do this? Some guys are completely against it. Some guys are completely for it. Um, yeah, I'm curious your perspective. So the first question I want to ask, even before we hear your, your opinion on whether or not guys should be doing it, is um, what's your thoughts on what the ranges have done kind of over the last decades, call it three, four, five decades, have you seen any of the research on how it shifted relative to what we'll call the median or the, or the mean now? And if you just talk to that a little bit. Yeah. Even different countries have different ranges. So if you look at the normal range for Greece or Turkey, or one of the countries in the, I guess, the Northern part of the mid East, the normal is something like 400 to a thousand. Don't quote me on that verbatim, but the range is significantly statistically significantly higher than it is here. And if you do look at the ranges over time, they have gone down significantly. So there's obviously a cause of that. Um, you know, we try to test healthy people when we develop standard normal ranges, but, uh, you know, even probably two thirds of people in the United States have insulin resistance or prediabetes of some sort. In fact, about 40% of people, um, that did not know they had prediabetes actually had prediabetes, partly just because we don't screen A1C because a lot of insurance companies don't want to screen A1C. So there's one insurance company, which I will not name, that um, specifically said, we will not pay for an A1C. So do not order an A1C in your patients, even though 38% of them have prediabetes and don't know it, and it's a modifiable disease. And uh, even though it's a goal of healthy people 2030, which the government helped go by. So that's a positive public health initiative, um, which I think is excellent. Another positive public health initiative is um, them declaring obesity as a pathology, as a disease, and also saying that it is an epidemic in this country. So I kind of rabbit trailed uh, a little bit from there, but uh, that's one way I think of it. Very cool. So let's talk about uh, hormone replacement, um, whether it be males, females, I don't know a lot about female hormones. I'll be honest. It's not something I've ever dove into, but I'd love to have you speak to hormones, specifically testosterone in men and women, and specifically estrogen in men and women, and maybe some some different thoughts on optimization. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Uh, So where I was going from there is when you're weighing the risk and benefit of hormone replacement, whether it's testosterone in men or whether it's um, women's hormone replacement, you take into account all the different variables. And one of the variables is hypogonadal men who go on TRT have significantly less diabetes and they have less body fat, which improves their insulin resistance. So um, if there's a listener, if there's a patient and they're in that large percentage of people who don't know that they're starting to get metabolic syndrome, then um, you would think, uh, you know, TRT, theoretically it can cause plaque. Maybe I don't want to do it, 
but perhaps that could be a positive for that individual. Um, usually a good the way to think of it- could be a positive or the TRT could be a positive? The, the TRT could be a positive because if like uh, TRT, you're less likely to develop diabetes. It kind of gives you the tools to improve your lifestyle. If you're hypogonadal and um, you just know that there's no chance that you're going to be able to exercise or go on a good diet and TRT can help change that, it can change your life. It can prevent you from getting diabetes. It can actually decrease your risk of having plaque or a heart attack or a stroke. So that person might be a good candidate. There might be somebody else with um, relatively similar levels, but perhaps their level of testosterone is because they took a supplement or a substance and they're able to recover that either naturally or with the use of a medication in a short term. And um, in that case, then TRT would not be helpful. In fact, it would probably be harmful. And in my experience, almost everybody who starts TRT or HRT develops some sort of side effect. They might not know it. A lot of them are insidious or hidden, but there's so many different side effects that it seems like everybody has at least some sort of deleterious response, even if it's mild. So uh, you're, yeah, you're, you're weighing those two things. A lot of people start, uh, you know, they're 200 milligrams of TRT from a TRT clinic and they'll start their AI with it and they feel great and they lose fat and their prediabetes goes away. But um, they're on such a high dose of AI and also they're on such a high dose of testosterone that develop um, LVH and they have uh, cardiac hypertrophy and they have an arrhythmia and they pass away. Left or, ventricular hypertrophy. Yeah. Yep. So maybe they've had, maybe they went on TRT and they've got polycythemic. They didn't get enough follow up labs. And um, what, you know, sorry, poly what? Polycythemia. A lot of, a lot of, uh, men and also women that are on uh, testosterone or androgens, their hemoglobin and hematocrit spikes up very high. So a good example of this is the Swedish cycling team. And they've had a couple different instances. Um, cyclists love to take erythropoietin, not necessarily as much testosterone, but um, think of your hematocrit as the percentage of your blood that's red blood cells. So if it's 60% or 70% of your blood is red blood cells, imagine how thick that is and how likely it is to get clogged and cause a stroke, which is a blockage in the vessel and causes hypoxic brain injury. Yep. Great. So let's talk about uh, interventions with that, right? So um, first thing, actually, before we talk about interventions, it seems as though everyone across the country prescribes the same thing to every man that walks in the door. Everyone's getting 200 milligrams of testosterone. Many people, unfortunately, in my opinion, are giving AIs. I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Um, and then everybody's like, "Hey, maybe you need HCG." And and we know it's a we know our I I believe it's a financial model. It's not meant to to actually help the person. It's meant to make money for the physician or or the practice practitioner. Uh, but I'd love to hear your opinion on well, why first of all, why is everyone getting the same thing? Second, is the protocol everyone's getting? Let's assume everyone's getting two milligrams of testosterone, one milligram of uh, aromacin a day or arimidex a day, and let's say I don't know a couple thousand IU's of HCG a week. Um, what's your thoughts on that? And, you know, why do you think everyone's getting the same thing? Yeah. Um, that is the standard protocol and it's a terrible counterproductive protocol. People are getting the same thing because a lot of these clinics make their money off of, um, selling the medications. And before we go into like the side effects and effects of the medications, if your clinic is making any money or they say you have to use a specific pharmacy for your medications, you probably do not want to be using that clinic or that um, if they don't call themselves a clinic, that place to get your 
hormone replacement or your advice for hormones because they're incentivized to prescribe more and they're not doing it within your best interest. So, um, but yeah, to break down that protocol further, HCG a lot of times upregulates um, aromatase. So it can lead to hyperestrogenism. So why would you be doing that? And also taking an aromatase inhibitor, just decrease the dose of the HCG, decrease the dose of the testosterone, increase the administration frequency, change the carrier oil, uh, use a more viscous oil or do subcutaneous administration. Um, there's a bunch of different ways. You can take calcium deglucurate. Every once in a while, taking DIM is probably fine, even though it's mildly anti-androgenic as well. So there's a lot of ways to um, optimize your aromatization. I've noticed that a lot of people also think that their estrogen is running very high, whether it's their blood pressure, how they feel, or their moodiness, and they get their labs back and their estrogen's extremely low. So um, sometimes you just need objective data to go along with the biofeedback. The biofeedback is very helpful, but you definitely need objective data too. So most people in my experience, um, you know, obviously there's some people on literally 70 milligrams a week and some people on 200 or a little bit more, but I would say the median testosterone dose would be 120 milligrams a week. And most people, if they're going to use it, an ester like cypionate or enanthate need to administer twice weekly in order to not have too much of a peak in a trough. So that is not your individualized, you know, that's not specific but that's the average. Yeah. yeah, everyone needs to see their physician and, and consult their labs. Now, talk to me about aromatase inhibitors, specifically uh, anastrozole, which is maybe the most commonly prescribed, it seems. Um, have you looked at the data on the negative implications of that? And, or, or do you believe it potentially is a good intervention? Yeah, it's a good intervention for um, those with breast cancer. Right. So, um, yeah, uh, anastrozole, is a non-suicidal inhibitor. So some, it kind of makes it seem a little bit nicer, but it still inhibits um, almost 100% of the aromatase enzyme. So it precipitously drops estrogen and estrogen is very important for the prevention of cardiovascular disease. So if you're on an astrozole for a long period of time, you're significantly more likely to have plaque buildup in the arteries and um, you, know, you might have a stent or a heart attack and it very well might be related to your anastrozole or aromacin. A lot of clinics will do 0.5 or one of anastrozole or 12.5 or 25 of aromacin. Mm -hmm. Aromacin is only around like 70% of inhibition, but it's, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like an irreversible in inhibitor or suicidal as a lot of people know it. So at either one of those, uh, I'm not a fan of, there are a few people who truly need TRT and they need a very small dose. Usually the, you can actually correlate that with genetic data and you can also do a Dutch test to see how their estrogen excretion is kind of in vivo. So even if they have genes that say, you know, your estrogen excretion is hyperactive or hypoactive, you can test that and see if they're excreting a lot of estrogen in their urine relative to their serum estrogens. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure you've experienced a lot of cases where people are just simply intervening in lifestyle and training and nutrition, seeing a massive bump in testosterone. One of my clients recently saw a 400 point bump naturally in just three months of optimization protocols. And I was like, that's, and he's 61 years old, like that's massive, right? And I was like, okay, how do we then take these simple practices? And again, to give the guy credit, he's, he's, a, he's a soldier. He does everything meticulously as he's, as he's instructed to do. But um, you know, what interventions have you seen that seem to be bring people's natural testosterone up? Yeah. So, um, a, a lot of people will try 
to get their health in order in many different ways. They'll try to, you know, uh, they'll try to increase their testosterone, increase their um, lean muscle mass, decrease their body fat. The first step to that is usually being in a caloric deficit and losing body fat. So when the average person loses weight, about a third of it, almost 35% is lean body mass. Of course, a little bit of the lean body mass is in adipose tissue itself, but only a single digit percentage usually. So when that happens, it's very difficult to increase your testosterone. After you get to that point, then you're in more of a caloric maintenance phase. So can I just really interrupt you for a second? Are you telling everyone that that's the approach they should go into caloric deficit? I just want to clarify that. I wasn't sure by the way you said that. It depends on, uh, so if it's specifically to increase their testosterone and their body fat is in the obese category, then they should probably consider going into deficit first. Um, but if they're a normal body fat, then obviously going into deficit is not going to help. Why, so, why do you think, why do you think the deficit is the first intervention? I'm again, I'm, I'm not, uh, questioning it. Just want to hear your logic. Yeah. So a high body fat, uh, relative to a testosterone, let's say they're starting testosterone is. 300 or even 250, which is, you know, technically just beneath the reference range. Um, then, uh, a, a high body fat in the obese category would be significantly worse than just having a, a low normal testosterone level. A low normal testosterone level is not very strongly correlated with negative outcomes, um, morbidity and mortality. However, a high body fat is, so, um, it's kind of like building the cornerstone. If you're going to try to like, uh, you know, go in a caloric surplus, then you're going to do more damage by adding body fat, becoming more insulin resistant, becoming diabetic, um, getting worse hypertension, then you are slightly increasing your testosterone. And also you're probably going to get sleep apnea at some point, and then your testosterone is going to be even lower. So it's almost like a, a necessary, not evil, but it's a necessary first step to optimizing your testosterone naturally is to be at a healthy body fat percentage. Totally. Totally uh, agree with that. And I think it's, it's always dependent on like how much body fat, because if someone's got 30 plus percent body fat, then they've got so many stored calories. We just have to teach their body how to tap into it more effectively. Right. So things like improving mitochondria efficiency and sensitivity inflammation, just the things you're mentioning, right. Just going down that list of interventions to allow their body to actually use it more effectively at rest. Uh, I've heard of people who are doing these extend, like obese people doing extended fasts and literally losing zero pounds of, of weight or a body fat. And my brain goes to, to like, geez, how metabolically dysfunctional they have to be to literally eat nothing for five days and lose zero weight. Um, so again, for anyone listening, just like fasting is not the answer. Fixing your metabolism first and foremost is the answer by certainly going into a caloric deficit and exercising. Think of it this way. When you're trying to optimize your testosterone, it's like if you were trying to get into a fraternity or a secret club. Um, there's something that's blackballing you and you need to figure out what that is. Is it your vitamin D? Is it uh, your body fat percentage? Is it your sleep apnea? So once you figure out what that is, you're removing the variable. So it's not really even testosterone optimization. It's just finding what is holding you back. Maybe for some people, endocrine disruptors, workplace expo exposures, uh, you know, the, um, hours that you sleep, um, even shift to work as men age can affect it as well. So you find what is blackballing you and then you take that out and you fix that. And that's when you're going to see the precipitous increase. So, you know, I've seen blood work of 90 year olds and they have total testosterone's 
over a thousand and free testosterone's over 30. So there's, it's definitely doable and they're not even specifically trying to optimize their testosterone. They just happen to live a lifestyle and have genetics as well that, um, you know, allow that. You know, ironically, I was writing about endocrine disruptors today and the prevalence of those just seems to be mind blowing. And the implications are so much deeper than uh, I think the general public understands. I'd love to have you speak to your understanding or your um, you know, research into endocrine disruptors. Yeah. So um, from like a societal standpoint, it's difficult to talk a lot about endocrine disruptors because they're almost like the roads or the cars of uh, the transportation age. So like, you know, through the industrial age, obviously transportation and going worldwide, car crashes kill a lot of people and cars are extremely dangerous and people don't really realize that. Like cars are unbelievably dangerous. Um, but endocrine disruptors are very dangerous as well. They've also been something that's come with the industrial age, the age of plastics, maybe whatever you want to call it. But I've even tested my own water and had an endocrine disruptor in it, and it was still ranked as um, above the 50th percentile. Which one? For, which which disruptor? Uh, for water. Uh, it was a microplastic. It was not bisphenol A, but uh, it was a pretty significant quantity. And then I started using a Berkey filter. And then I saw um, if you use Berkey filters for a long time, because they have silver in them, then you can have silver toxicity. So you just want to not have a significant... Uh, disruptor in your water or your food at a clinically significant quantity. So if you think about it, people talk about, I know people talk about deuterium. I know people talk about um, like ultraviolet light, um, but regardless of what the oxidative damage or the endocrine disruptor is, you want to be below the threshold dose for you to where it would make a significant impact on your hormones or your health in general. Yeah. Can you tell us what test you're using for that? I don't remember the name of the water test. Was was that what you were asking? Yeah. I do not remember the name of the water test. Um, I'll send it to you after though, but um, oh, yeah. it seems Let's like see a, it. a fairly reputable one. The two things that I would like, I'm, I tend to not be neurotic about very much. The two things that I, I would say I'm neurotic about are my air quality and my water quality. Cause like, it's just, it's just everywhere, right? Like I'm always drinking water. I'm always breathing air. So no matter where I am in the world, I'm kind of, OCD about like, what kind of quality is this? Cause I noticed a significant difference. Like I can go in, I'm the canary in the coal mine, right? I can go into a house and go, that house has mold. I'm out. And yeah. uh, that's just, you know, from years of just paying attention to it and same with the water quality, you can kind of feel when you feel sluggish after water versus when you feel energized. And so I'd love to have a resource where I could kind of tap into seeing no pun intended tap into seeing what is actually in that water. Yeah, definitely. Um, the exposure time definitely matters as well. So even in the, even in the clinic, if you're talking about an x-ray or a CT scan, if you're a radiology tech, then you need to be particularly careful with that. Um, you know, if you're, you know, I might go in there and I need to help hold, you know, hold a baby or something. And it's just once a year, it's not a big deal. But if you're doing that every single day then those tiny little doses can add up cumulatively. Do you have any interventions as far as detoxification of these environmental uh, toxins or endocrine disruptors? Because I know some people are big on detoxification. Some people are big on just like, hey, man, you got to drink water and you got a sauna. Uh, what are your thoughts on any specific protocols that come to mind to help us get rid of these things? Yeah, I'm a big fan of normal hydration. Um, sauna is obviously fantastic as well and has great evidence. 
I'm not big on, um, I guess, cleansing regimens because they can also paradoxically do damage. So it's kind of the same thing with supplements. Um, you know, a, a supplement is just the same thing as a prescribed medication. And people are very familiar that some prescribed medications have things in them that are harmful. Um, there's recalls all the time. Uh, a year or two back, Zantac, which is a very uh, popular antacid, had a recall for one of its inert ingredients. And supplements have the same thing, but supplements aren't regulated as much. So it probably happens more, but it's just not caught as much. So um, yeah, uh, again, that's kind of a rabbit trail from the question. But um, regardless of what it is, thinking about both the inert and the active ingredients is important for not ingesting toxins in the first place. Um, it's more of like a preventative thing. Once somebody has toxins, depending on what it is, sometimes there's like chelators that we can do, um, but those are pretty rare circumstances. Usually it can be prevented by um, preemptive measures. As a family care physician, how often do you see acid reflux on these metagenetic? So I'm curious if that's something you deal with often. Yeah, all the time, uh, especially in my obesity medicine practice as well. Um, and in my hormone optimization practice too. So um, there's a lot of different types of acid reflux that people aren't very familiar with. This time of year, one of the most popular types is mint induced, so like peppermint, spearmint. Um, uh, so obviously candies have that in it. A lot of trochies have mint in it as well. Some people are mint sensitive. Some people aren't. People know about the common ones, you know, alcohol, caffeine, chocolate. Um, those are pretty common for inducing acid reflux. If you're obese, it also increases their likelihood. Some people are sensitive to spicy foods. Some people are not. So there's a lot of various triggers. There's also serotonin-induced acid reflux. So if you look at cases of acid reflux that are not H. pylori, which uh, if you have acid reflux, you should be screened for H. pylori, in my opinion. In fact, the AAFP, I believe, has a test and treat strategy, which means if you have acid reflux, you test for H. pylori, and then you treat it. Um, so it, you know, there's a lot of people out there that should be screened for H. pylori. The breath test and the stool test are the um, ones that are accurate. The serum test is not very accurate. EGDs, of course, are um, the gold standard. What's but, an EGD? Uh, it's esophago uh, gastro duodenoscopy. So it's basically a small tube that goes down your throat. It's the opposite of a colonoscopy okay. <laughs> or not the opposite, but, uh, you know, right. it's colonoscopy from the top. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, um, EGDs are kind of the gold standard. And if you have really bad acid reflux, then maybe you do have an ulcer or even a cancer or something like that. Interestingly, the only, one of the only types of cancer that's treatable with antibiotics is the gastric cancer, maltoma, I believe that H pylori can cause. But um, yeah, so bacteria are also a cause um, of uh, acid reflux. If you look at cases that are refractory to both H2 blockers like Zantac and Pepsid, and also the proton pump inhibitors like Prilosec and Nexium, um, if there's not another organic cause, often increasing your serotonin can help as well. Citalopram or Celexa is what doctors use pretty often. That's what most of the evidence is on. But a lot of functional medicine doctors use things like Kana, which is a serotonergic herb, or even serotonergic probiotics, probiotics that are proven to increase your levels of serotonin, which mm. um, is how humans get a lot of their serotonin at baseline to begin with. Can you talk to me mechanistically what's happening when someone has acid reflux? And there may be different types, but just like what is it, is it just a deteriorating um, sphincter or like what, what exactly is happening? Obviously, you said there, there's potentially yeah. the ulcers. Um, so, so your LES or your lower esophageal sphincter is actually not a true sphincter. 
you have a hiatal area, which is basically a hole in the diaphragm. And if you have a hiatal hernia, that's where the top part of your stomach or the fundus can slide up into your, um, uh, basically cavity where the lung is and out of the peritoneal cavity. So that's a, a hiatal hernia when it's reflux, it's just when the fluid itself or the acidic fluid in the stomach travels up the esophagus can cause things like Barrett's esophagus or chronic inflammation or esophagitis and then, um, into the throat. So there's also silent reflux, which is where you're still having the, uh, fluid come up from the stomach, but it's not acidic. So, uh, the, the sphincter is not a true sphincter between the esophagus and the stomach, but when fluid travels between it and goes reverse, it's not peristalsis, but it's kind of like reverse peristalsis. That's also the same thing that happens when you vomit. So, uh, it's kind of similar to that. So oftentimes in the functional medicine community, you hear things like apple cider vinegar. So most people who have acid reflux be like, that sounds like torture. Like you're going to create more acid in my stomach. That sounds like a bad idea. Do you have any suggestions as far as natural interventions again? And is it a bad idea to just paint it with a broad stroke? Yeah. So, uh, it's good if the stomach has acid in it. So Acid not only activates and releases things like intrinsic factor that helps you absorb vitamin B12, it also activates pep, uh, pepsinogen and pepsin, which kind of like cause the cascade of all the other enzymes in your gut. So um, it's actually good to help your stomach be acidic. Apple cider vinegar is a very weak acid. So it's not a strong acid like the hydrochloric acid in your stomach. So, um, you know, maybe it's too weak of an acid. Maybe that's the reason why we should criticize it as well but it's not going to fix the acid reflux of someone who has, you know, an ulcer or it's not going to fix the acid, it, you know, it's probably not going to cure H pylori by itself. There are regimens that are not antibiotics that can at times cure H pylori. They're not as good as antibiotics at curing H pylori, but they have a uh, decent evidence for doing so. Do you know what those are? There's a few different combinations and protocols. Uh, I don't know the specific combinations. For antibiotics, it's either called triple therapy or quad therapy if it's resistant. Very cool. Um, that was fantastic. So much information. When you're in, when you're in the area of obesity medicine, one thing that comes to mind for me, and I think we briefly touched on, is the optimization of cellular health. I'm curious, you know, outside of the big six, or even within the concept that the confines of the big six. Uh, some basic things we should be looking for, whether that be through testing or lifestyle interventions to optimize the function of a cell. It seems as though, you tell me if I'm wrong, obviously the optimization of cell function is, is, is the gold standard, right? If you can optimize how an individual cell works, you optimize how everything else works. So is it just basically all these little life interventions that are going to optimize it, the, all the basic longevity practices, or is there specific things that we should be doing to optimize cellular health? Yeah. So I guess part of the thing at the root of this question is again, the, the question of is aging natural or is it a pathology or disease? And I think to some degree, some cellular aging is natural, but accelerated aging is a disease. It's just really hard to tell when it's accelerated. So a lot of the lifestyle interventions can help. We've talked about fasting already. Um, I, we've already talked about sirtuins a little bit, but um, there, for some people, depending on their family history, depending on their history as well, there are supplements and medications that can help too. So I know David Sinclair talks about plant polyphenols pretty often. Uh, resveratrol is kind of the classic one that's in red wine. 
Um, so that's one uh, place that some people can address. Um, another you know, area that people can address is inflammation in general. And if you have an autoimmune disease, so if you look at rates of things like heart attacks and strokes, if you have, you know, let's say Crohn's or lupus, it's significantly higher just from the inflammation, all other variables being equal. So that's another vector, but it's another one of those things where you need to address it from every single angle in order to have the optimal outcome. The average American or your average or median person, um, their biggest intervention is going to be going in a caloric deficit, getting to a healthy body weight. That way, um, you know, they're uh, not in an anabolic state all the time. They're not in an anabolic state like um, yourself and other bodybuilders. They're in an anabolic state, building up fat molecules instead of muscle, and their metabolism is decreasing instead of increasing. So that's why you have uh, obesogenic diseases like cancers that are specifically related to obesity. And, uh, if you look at rates of neurodegenerative diseases, things like Alzheimer's are the highest in people who are obese until they reached an old age group. And then they lost weight, you know, in their sixties, seventies, and eighties. So that is the highest risk of neurodegenerative diseases because early in life, they had the accelerated aging and, um, you know, inflammation and oxidative damage in their brain. And then they had a lack of nutrients uh, you know, going into old age. So it's kind of a, a, a bad combo synergistically hurting them. Yeah. You mentioned sirtuins and, and we didn't go into that too much. And I actually plan to have Dr. Sinclair back on the podcast soon, but I'd love to have you share what uh, your thoughts are on sirtuins. And if you want to give the, the audience a little intro to that, that'd be great. Yeah. David Sinclair is obviously the sirtuin expert, I think. He's the guy, yeah. But um, you can test sirtuin genes as well. So a lot of genetic tests, you know, they'll only test a few of them, but if you look at one and six, those are two that I'm kind of like more particularly interested in because they, that can significantly change your risk of diabetes, um, all other factors being equal. So again, if you're looking at the median person or the average person, you're concerned about uh, them getting diabetes. So a lot of the controversial things that are talked about can kind of be summed up um, is this making your insulin resistance worse or your prediabetes or your diabetes risk worse or better? Because once you reach the, you know, the state where you're diabetic, if it's very mild, then maybe some of it's reversible, but if it's not, then a lot of it's irreversible that way, you know, at most diabetics, we know that they'll live longer on a statin. So it's almost like, um, too late at that point, if it makes sense. Um, <laughs> Yeah. As far as other sirtuins in general, um, just think of them as, um, they're, they're each a little bit different, but the dietary change that changes that you can make can alter your levels of sirtuins pretty significantly. And you usually see those changes in what's called a Horvath's block. So, um, it, I think it's uh, expensive to get a license to use Horvath's clock itself. But there's a lot of other services that you can use. I think Inside Tracker is one of them that will calculate your your inner age or pheno age or whatever they call it. But there is multiple ways to do it. And um, if you go to a longevity or preventative medicine doctor, um, a lot of times I do it as well. Very cool. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't had Dr. Horvath on yet, but I think that should happen in the future. And we had Ryan Smith on, who's I think one of his top researchers. Do you know Ryan? I'm not familiar, but I'll look into it. Ryan's brilliant. He's uh 
I know he's went over and worked to work with Dr. Horvath and he came on and taught us a little, little bit about it. And well, com too complex for my brain, but uh, useful nonetheless. Um, so, so cool. So you, you mentioned some basic practices, kind of just coming back to the cellular optimization thing. And um, one thing that stood out to me is like some, some maybe guidance around mitochondrial optimization, because that seems to be a big factor, specifically in obesity medicine, specifically in, in cellular optimization, energy production, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have any um, suggestions there on what people should be doing to optimize mitochondrial function? And do you even think that's one of the biggest considerations? Yeah, I think it's a huge consideration. Um, you know, we're obviously symbiotes, not just with our gut microbiome, but also with the prokaryotes that um, cause us to have mitochondria. So uh, one that a lot of people talk about is L-carnitine because the carnitine palmitoyl coenzyme A shuttle does go across the double mitochondrial cell membrane and kind of shuttles um, certain types of fatty acids across to help with utilization. Um, one of the things to remember with mitochondria is obviously they are the powerhouse of the cell. Um, I think they, hopefully they still teach in high school and uh, they uh, can ha have a pretty significant difference when it comes to lipolysis. So things that you take for lipolysis aren't necessarily fat burners they just break up fat into building blocks to allow presumably the caloric deficit again for the median person to lose that body fat. So you have to have both things, uh, taking place. So, um, yeah, that, that's the, the main one I think of a lot of other people benefit from, uh, vitamin K2. A lot of people benefit from ubiquinol or CoQ10. Um, a lot of people benefit from taking a walk early in the morning or a fasted uh, fasted cardio. So, uh, you know, for the average person, they, you don't need to do fasted cardio. It can be difficult to, especially in the winter when it's freezing, but that's another way that you can basically help utilize your mitochondria. You can also sequence the genome of your mitochondria as well, um, which is passed down in a maternal lineage pattern. That's pretty interesting. I didn't know. Uh, and you, now you also mentioned NMN. I'm curious if that fits into the mitochondria optimization or if that's just cellular optimization in general? Yeah, so uh, NMN is uh, nicotinamide riboside. So it's an NAD precursor. So NAD, like if you've been to an infusion clinic, a lot of times uh, we love prescribing NAD. Uh, sometimes if you infuse it or inject it, it makes your chest feel a little bit heavy, but um, it directly shunts into the mitochondria to help the mitochondria create or have energy. So NMN is basically a way that you can get around it as a precursor to, um, you know, take it orally. You're able to absorb it to some degree, and it's going to allow your mitochondria to produce more energy. Think of it as like uh, almost fuel. Yeah. So for someone who maybe is diabetic or has mitochondrial dysfunction, would NMN be something you suggest they do? And what would be the dosing protocol? And again, you don't have to make it a prescription, but like maybe a, a typical do dosing protocol they might use in, in research. Yeah. Um, I, I don't recommend like specific brands or dosages of NMN. I think Niagen is like the fancy brand name. Um, as far as an IV perhaps? Um, uh, with IVs, the issue with IVs is that the benefits only really, really going to last like that one day. So, um, you know, unless you're getting an IV every other day or a couple times a week, which some people might consider doing, especially if they're getting over like a headache or, uh, you know, something else. But, um, yeah, I usually don't recommend, I think David Sinclair's talked about this too. He doesn't really like state that he likes specific brands. I could be wrong. 
Um, and I think there's certain things that you look out for as well. So you're looking to make sure that it's not a certain color, but I'm not really an expert in that. Um, are you so, referring to, are you referring to like a supplement form now and not an IV? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So I don't think that NMN comes in an IV. Hmm. Um, I could, I could it's be wrong, easy. but I think IV is just uh, NAD plus and for 99.9% of people, um, unless they're just intermittently using NAD and IV, uh, they're probably just as well off using NMN just because it, um, it's a, a short enough half-life to where you probably can't stockpile enough NAD unless you're going to get an IV every single week. So one every two months is probably not going to, um, help your mitochondria retain high function. Does the data show that NMN actually is uh, useful when taken orally? So uh, I don't think that there's great data to show that for sure it's going to make a clinically significant difference for your mitochondria. There is data that shows that it leads to increased NAD levels. So uh, it's bioavailable to some degree, and it does seem to increase NAD. Uh, it's hard to say if that's clinically significant. I, I believe it's statistically significant, um, but uh, it's relatively safe as well. So it's one of those things where um, it's safe, it probably helps, and theoretically it helps as well, um, both for uh, mitochondrial function and for cellular anti-aging. So you might as well, it's, it's another one of those balance scales where the risk of harm is very low. So uh, even if there's not very strong evidence for benefit, it's worth doing if you can afford it for a lot of people. Right. So when you say cellular anti-aging, are you referring to protein folding, X differentiations, sirtuins? Like what specifically, like how would you define protein or uh, cellular anti-aging? Uh, in that case, it would be both oxidative damage and mitochondrial function. Um, uh, that I know of, it does not affect, uh, well, uh, the oxidative damage could affect the protein folding. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't, that I know of, it's not going to affect telomere length. Um, if it, if it helps you, uh, be in a caloric deficit, then, um, you know, perhaps you're able to lose weight, perhaps you're less insulin resistant, perhaps your growth hormone levels are lower. Um, perhaps your, uh, cell turnover is slower as well. Right. In general, you want your cells to have periods of senescence and you also want your cells to not turn over too fast. So, Right. Think of someone who's uh, always gaining weight, even bodybuilders, like, um, you know, I'm sure you're well aware, bodybuilders who are very low body fat can also have too high of cell turnover, especially if they're on very high levels of growth hormone or even IGF-1, um, where that can affect uh, DNA or telomere length. Interesting. Are you using your obesity clinic, are you using um, GLP-1 agonist like Ozempic? Yeah, so Ozempic is... Uh, the, the generic name would be semaglutide. Ozempic and Rebelsis, which is the oral form, are used in diabetics. And then the uh, new form of semaglutide is Wegovy, which I use in my obesity medicine patients. But uh, semaglutide is a good molecule. It has a lot of different mechanisms of action. So a lot of people know it just as an appetite suppressant, but it's also going to have several other effects. It's going to affect your peripheral insulin sensitivity. It also helps, uh, you know, people know that it's a, a incretin, so it's an, uh, it's going to help you secrete insulin, but it's not squeezing the pancreas like sulfonylureas do. 
So um, a lot of the medications that used to like blepizide or gliburide, they really squeeze the pancreas and get every last drop of insulin out. But this also helps with insulin sensitivity. So it's more mimicking a normal um, function of the insulin and glucagon in your body. It's also uh, has a gustatory response. So if you look at endogenous GLP-1 levels, um, they're different when you eat protein versus fat versus carbs. With carbs, they spike up very quick, but then they level off. With protein, they increase and then don't level off quite as fast. And then with fat, they take a long time to increase. But after a couple hours, you have a sustained release of GLP-1. So that's kind of like the um, carnivore keto diet hack is that if you're able to stay on it consistently for a long time, you have a fairly nice high-ish level of GLP-1 for a long period of time. And so what benefit would that allow you to receive? So it has the incretin effect where your insulin and glucagon both function well. It also has an appetite suppressant effect, which most people are pretty familiar with. Um, it also has that gustatory response. So th this is, this is taking the Zempic specifically and just getting the GLP-1 up naturally does the same thing. Yeah, uh, very similar function. Got it. Have you seen any negative effects from Ozempic? Yeah. So there's a couple strict contraindications. If you have a history of medullary thyroid carcinoma, which is a really rare thyroid cancer, then um, you shouldn't have it. Or if you have a specific type of multiple endocrine neoplasia, uh, one of the type twos. So it also increases your risk of pancreatitis. So if you have really, really high triglycerides or a lot of alcohol use, um, then you should uh, watch for pancreatitis. If you already have gallstones, you should take care of that as well. You can get something called cholestasis, which is basically just the sludging up. Um, if you have cholelithiasis, which is actually stones in there, then you can be at risk of having such a large gallstone that you might need your gallbladder taken out, especially if you're losing weight very quickly. So sometimes I'll put people on erstadiol, which is basically prescribed tudka, um, without touring. So sometimes I'll put, uh, a patient on both semaglutide or liraglutide along with ursodiol if they're going to lose weight very quickly. And then in some patients that have, you know, maybe their triglyceride is 500, so it's not really high risk of pancreatitis. I control the tri hypertriglyceridemia with something like Vesepa or EPA first, and uh, then I initiate the GLP-1. Interesting. Um, have you seen any increases in resting heart rate and decreases in heart rate variability. Is that something you ever look at? Yeah. Um, specifically with GLP ones, they haven't done that, that I know of, uh, it's possible. I've seen a massive increase and in, uh, some of my clients take it and some of them think like they're, they're loving the fat loss, but their, their heart rate is 20, 30% higher and their HOV just tanks. And it's pretty consistent across the board. So I'd curious if you'd seen that. I haven't seen that. that I know of, um, I wonder if that is a specific effect because obviously GLP-1 acts in multiple different tissues, peripherally and centrally across the blood-brain barrier, or if it's directly on cardiac tissue, or if it has to do with the pretty severe uh, you know, caloric deficits a lot of people on GLP-1s are, are in. Yeah. So the guys that I talk to, like I, I'm, I'm aware of their calories, we'll say, and um, nobody's on a massive deficit, never more than 10, 20% tops. But yeah, it's never like below BMR. It's never, never a significant deficit, for, certainly for an extended period of time. Yeah, I'd be interested if it's related to the relative hypoglycemia too. A lot of times I'll put people on a Dexcom or a Libre or a CGM um, just to monitor their blood glucose levels. Yeah. So uh, some people do tend to get 
uh, hypoglycemic, especially if they're on other things. For example, if you're on metformin as well, then that can kind of be like synergistically hyper hypoglycemic. If you're on berberine, berberine is also a weak GLP-1 receptor agonist, yep. and that can also cause it. Uh, in addition, if you're on an ACE or an ARB plus metformin, those two together can also cause hypoglycemia. So a lot of people, when they start their GLP-1, I might actually take them off their telmosartan or their lisinopril, and I might take them off their metformin, and I might take them off their berberine and glucose disposal agent just to decrease the risk of hypoglycemia and the side effects. That yeah, come so with. I know my guys, none of them are using any of those things. And it's, so if it was hypoglycemia, it would make sense that if they ate carbohydrates, it would probably slow itself down, right? It wouldn't stay elevated. Uh, if you were saying if you were eating carbohydrates or not well, eating so carbohydrates? If, they're, if they weren't hypoglycemic in the moment, let's say I give them a, you know, a high carbohydrate day where they're having a steady dose of carbohydrates day to day, so we knew they're not in a hypo, uh, hypoglycemic state but yet the heart rate still stayed elevated. Would that be an indication that it's likely not due to that? It might be, but uh, testing their glucose in the, uh, in the nighttime as they sleep is probably most, most important. Mm -hmm. So some people on GLP-1s will get what's called dawn phenomenon, which is where they have um, a very low blood glucose, but while they sleep, like 3 a.m. And a lot of people get this if they take... Uh, you know, berberine or even their GLP-1, like their the reglutide, the faster acting one in the evening when they're not eating. And then their body detects that very low glucose, like 50. Obviously their sleep is horrible because they have a blood glucose of 50 while they're sleeping yeah. and their glucagon level spikes up very, very high. And the next morning they're not well rested and they kind of have the, they could theoretically have the same heart rate changes as someone who has sleep apnea. Crazy. Have you seen any, have you ever tried intervening with um, exogenous ketone esters for specifically for sleep or for hypoglycemia? Yeah. Um, I have had people take supplements of ketone esters to put them into ketosis theoretically as they sleep. Um, it's hard to say if it's placebo. Theoretically, it seems like it could potentially help. Uh, I've also had people avoid ketones, especially that are insulin dependent diabetics or type one diabetics. Um, that are on things like GLP-2s or GLP-1s just because of euglycemic DKA. But for people who are what, relatively what healthy- mean? Sorry, I don't know. I'm not familiar. You can go into ketoacidosis or diabetic ketoacidosis with actually right. a normal blood sugar. Um, but uh, it's uh, you know because you're peeing out your sugar or utilizing your sugar very quickly. Very interesting. Yep. Dr. Gillette, uh, that was great. I think we got some some great information out of you. Thank you so much. Uh, that was incredibly generous of you. Um, where can we send our audience to learn more from you or potentially work with you? Do you do a remote um, telemedicine? At some point, I'll start doing remote telemedicine. Uh, I don't do remote telemedicine for now, but people can find me on my Instagram at Kyle Gillette MD. And you said you just started shooting some videos. So we'll definitely direct everyone over there so they can check out all your great information. You recently did a Instagram live with our great friend, Andrew Huberman. You did a podcast with our other friend, Mark Bell. So some great resources where people can head over and find you and uh, learn more from you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. My pleasure. And that's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you very much for being here. I am your host, Ben Pakulski. Today's podcast with Kyle Gillette was a doozy. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe. You can now subscribe on Spotify, which is my new favorite place to listen to podcasts. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can even subscribe on Amazon and YouTube now. 
One final shout out to our show sponsors today, Organifi. Thank you so much, Organifi, for sponsoring the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Organifi has some awesome blends in their product line. If you haven't already tried, definitely check out their Wind Down Blends, the nighttime relaxation formula, which is golden milk or a chocolate golden milk formula of adaptogenic herbs, turmeric, and, and anti-inflammatory ingredients to really support the parasympathetic nervous system as you wind down before bed. Head over to Organifi.com, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 20% off. Have an amazing day. Live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Don't forget to share this podcast with at least one person you know and love who wants to thrive and will benefit from this information. Thank you for being here. Have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.